So I'm joined by Dr. Aylwood from the World Health Organization, just across the lake from me. Um, you've had a busy day, I think you were saying. <laughs> Every day is a busy day. Thank you. Um, so the first question that everyone listening to this will want to know, many of them will be in some form of lockdown. Do you have any idea how long it will last? Well, probably the best uh, indicator of how long this might last, it comes from China, because that's the only country that has truly, um, let's say, taken an escalating, rapidly escalating uh, uh, COVID outbreak and really turned the corner and brought it down. And if you look across China, across the 31 provinces, all of which were infected at one point or, or another, the longest and most difficult, of course, and let's start there, was Wuhan, which remained locked down. It will be nearly... 10 weeks by the time they lifted there. We've we'll all been all of February, March, and, and, and much of April. Now, there are many other provinces, however, that were able to manage this with a much shorter uh, uh, period for the shutdowns that ranged anywhere from, let's say, a month to, to two months. So it really depends a little bit on the context, how well the, the uh, the um, uh, control measures, let's say, bite or take the heat out of this uh, outbreak, but it, it will be more than a couple of weeks anywhere, uh, almost definitely. That doesn't sound too long. I guess the risk, though, the other risk we're all worried about is uh, a second wave. People keep right. quoting the, the Spanish flu from a century ago. Yeah, yeah. So the right now, there's really two scenarios you could think of. Um, what we've done, basically, or what countries have done is put, with all these slowdowns and shutdowns in workplaces and educational institutions and in society, concerts, etc., what they've done is they've really slowed down the rate of increase of, uh, of uh, the COVID outbreaks, but they actually haven't broken transmission chains. That really requires finding every single case, testing every suspect uh, case, confirming them, isolating the suspect cases, quarantining the others. And you really have to do those, uh, you know, transmission chain level measures, as well as the big shutdowns and slowdowns and lockdowns, if you want this thing really to turn around. So when I say, um, uh, you know, give, give uh, an optimistic timeline, it's if you were doing all of that. Now, most countries are scrambling just to get the big measures in place, just to treat the most severe patients. And that's what worries me a little bit in the West, that it might take a little bit longer to take the heat out of this thing. But um, I always want to be careful because we're dealing with a biologic process that's happening in the context of, you know, changes in seasons and other factors that just make some of this, uh, frankly, unpredictable. The key thing right now is doing as much as you can to save lives means trading people, yes, but it also means trying to slow down that outbreak at the same time. That testing issue, there seems to be a little, um, there's different interpretations of around the world of what should be happening. What is the World Health Organization's recommendation for testing? Is it test everyone you can? What is the recommendation? Well, that's a really good question, uh, Robin, because there's a lot of interpretation even of our recommendation. So, so let's try and set that record straight. What you, you do in a situation like this always is test the suspect cases. You don't want to test everybody because number one, it will waste a lot of resources because a lot of people won't be infected. Um, the other thing was give a lot of people a, a false sense of security. They'll think, oh, the test was negative, so I'm safe. And um, 
you have to take any test like that uh, in the context of the risk. So if you test a whole bunch of people who aren't sick, the test will tell you um, usually that they're not sick, but then you can even have false positives. Um, you can have false negatives, all sorts of problems. So you really want to be, for the reasons of um, issues around the test itself, but also issues around um, uh, just the amount of resource available, test the suspect cases. So what WHO, what our recommendation is, is test, 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 but test the suspect cases. Because um, it's, it's like that old uh, uh, story, my, my family's getting sick of hearing this one, but you know they once asked that famous bank uh, robber, um, uh, Willie, uh, what was the name, in the, in the US, and they said, you know, why do you rob banks? And he says, well, that's where the money is. And so why do you test suspect cases? Because that's where most of the, uh, the COVID virus is. So you find those. And if we test everyone else, we'll have a lot of other problems, frankly. And if if we don't test in the way you're suggesting, that will increase the risk of a second wave. Well, what what's going to happen, Robin, is that um, people will uh, people are getting advice that says if you feel unwell or you think you might have COVID, stay home until you feel better. Now, the reality is um, they may well have COVID. If they stay home, first of all, and they're not sure they have COVID, they won't take the incredible precautions necessary not to infect the rest of their family if they live with people. But the bigger problem, Robin, is that within two or three or four or five days, they're going to feel a lot better. And they're going to say to themselves, gosh, I heard COVID was a terrible disease, so I must have just had a cold or something. And I'll wander back out there into society and do, you know, supermarkets and, 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 and other forum. And what's going to happen, though, is they can still infect people. Because even though you feel better, you can still be infectious for up to 14 days and possibly even longer um, after you've recovered from the disease. So for that reason, we really want people to know their status because it just helps them um, just be better citizens and take better care of themselves and their families. I think we saw today Spain's um, death rate following Italy's overtook that of China's. Is there any way of saying why those two countries are getting it so heavily? Um, uh, or is it just the way of these things and many other countries will be going down that route in a week's time or, or so? Well, well, there's a combination of factors, Robin. When we look at a country like Italy or Spain and we think, well, why did they get so badly hit? Um, we can, part of it is just temporal. They, uh, by, by that I mean timing. They got hit earlier than some of the others. Um, and then s some of the high death rates that we're seeing, et cetera, can be associated with um, uh, multiple factors. We hear about this in the news all the time. One is the older uh, age of the population. Italy is the second oldest population in the world after Japan, of course. It can also be the fact that we're mainly seeing the severe cases that are hitting the hospitals and not all the mild cases aren't getting tested. So we have a, a falsely high uh, death rate. And there's other factors uh, can be at play as well. So all of those people understand. But what I always remind people is all of that is happening against a background of biologic processes in a large populations that we don't fully understand. Uh, we've known this disease for, for 12 weeks, even diseases that we've known for decades. Um, still, we don't know everything about why they express themselves in different ways in different populations. But what we have learned is this virus has the propensity 
to cause severe disease, societal disruption, massive outbreaks, economic uh, disruption in any environment. We've seen it now in the Middle East. We've seen it in Asia. We've seen it in Europe. And what it tells us everywhere is be prepared, be ready, take every step you possibly can to try and prevent the explosive outbreaks uh, we're seeing in places like Spain, like Italy. You've worked on outbreaks of infectious diseases around the world. I believe Ebola, working very closely with that. What's different about COVID-19 from all of these others that, that we got to know? Yeah, so over the last uh, uh, 20, 30 years now, I, I've worked with large-scale uh, um, infectious disease outbreaks, as, as have many, many of my colleagues, to be clear. We've worked in Ebola outbreaks. Uh, we've worked in polio outbreaks, measles outbreaks, uh, yellow fever outbreaks, the huge Zika outbreak that we saw just two years ago. Um, and when we look at this COVID outbreak, um, what, what, what myself and my colleagues often discuss is it brings many of those pieces together. Zika, uh, for example, um, had a, uh, was a pandemic almost. It's, it's, it spread. That virus could be found almost around the world, but it affected one uh, population and it hit one area of the world much more much worse than other areas. Um, we've seen pandemic flu as well, but um, with a much lower mortality rate. We've seen high mortality diseases like uh, Ebola, for example, but in very discrete areas. What's different about this one is it brings that wide geographic spread of a pandemic together with the high mortality rates um, and together with it being a respiratory pathogen, which means it spreads that much more rapidly. So this is really, uh, um, uh, it really brings together so many of those things that made each one of the other ones I mentioned dangerous uh, individually and often for discrete areas or certain subpopulations. This disease is uh, the global population, um, basically all age groups, so some are hit worse. Uh, this, this, is, uh, th this is a dangerous combination of, of, of many of the worst attributes we've seen of other, of other viruses. To uh, the danger of oversimplifying that, is it, is it that COVID-19 is just far more infectious? It's far more easy to, to transmit? Well, there, there are other diseases that are even more uh, uh, um, infectious or spread even more rapidly, let's say. Um, for example, people always quote this reproductive number and say, wow, COVID has a reproductive number of, uh, of, of 2.5. Measles has a reproductive number that's over 10. Um, uh, it, it can be spread much more efficiently. Uh, flu can spread much more quickly. It has a much shorter, what we call, serial interval than this one. So um, again, it's that it, it's the combination which which makes this virus so so difficult. Looking ahead now, as the World Health Organization, what are those milestones that ah that means? China's out of the woods or, or whatever. Do you have a list of those things? Yeah, well, first of all, you don't wait. Um, you push for those things. You push very hard. And uh, what we want, uh, what we really are looking at is um, how, many of, uh, how, how, how many places in the world can find their suspect cases and test them within uh, 48 hours of their onset of symptoms. Because when you get that number very, very high, you're going to understand the magnitude of what you're dealing with. How many countries can isolate, effectively isolate their cases within 24 hours? Because when you can do that, you know that you're getting the known virus out of the community. It's not infecting other people and you're getting in front of it. Um, and then similarly, we look at quarantine rates, et cetera. So there's a whole bunch of indicators that tell us, is a country um, on top of the measures needed to slow it down? 
The other things we look at, of course, is how good are the life-saving measures working? And there you're looking at the case fatality rates in different uh, age groups and different subgroups. But then the most important factor we're always looking at is what's happening to that epidemic trend. Um, is the rate of new cases slowing and has it actually turned, that, 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 that outbreak turned? But, um, you know, that can be due to a number of factors. So some people are just watching those curves, seeing them go up and seeing them turn. But what you want to see is the combination of the curve plus the response measures. And that's why when I was in China and doing a briefing at the end of it, I would never show just a curve. I would always show here's the curve and here's all the things that were being done to change that curve. And, and that's what we need to see is what does the curve look like? What are, are the big measures in place? Are they at the performance levels we want? Because that'll tell you in maybe two or three weeks, but that curve is going to bend. Um, and then when the curves have bent, you want to be sure that it's for the right reasons and not just because testing is dropped off or surveillance. So um, it, it's a combination. What's happening to the curve and the response measures on top of it? Any one of the two only gives you, you know, a partial understanding. So those are the things we'll be looking out for in the, in the coming weeks. Um, oh, part of it we'll be watching. We'll be watching the curves, but the response measures will be pushing right. because that's the part we control. And Robin, this is what's so important about COVID. Usually, we went into China wondering about this disease. There was a lot we didn't know. We knew it was a respiratory pathogen. We knew we didn't have a vaccine. And that usually means you're trying to do as much as possible just to save lives because the virus is going to be always in front of you. And what we learned was, to the, our surprise, was actually those old-fashioned case finding, isolation, quarantine can actually slow down a respiratory disease. So, um, you know, I'll come back to that again and again and again, because countries are, are, are now taking extraordinary measures to put shutdowns and slowdowns and lockdowns in place. But unless they're doing the other part, a little bit like you inferenced earlier, when they lift the big measures, this thing could take off again. And what we want to make sure of is when you lift the measures, the virus stays down. Thanks so much for that. I, if, if you've got a few more seconds, I, I'd like to throw some rapid fire questions. If I get COVID-19, I'm telling you, I've definitely got it, and I'm, I recover, am I then immune from getting it again? Probably. We don't know 100%, but most of what we know about coronaviruses tells us that you will develop immunity against this one. But we still haven't got the test to prove it. So it's going to take a little time, but the expectation is yes. How long does it linger on surfaces? We're buying things, bringing things into our houses. How, how much do we need to worry about the virus being on things? Right. In, in most cases, it's going to be a very short period. Remember, viruses can only survive in human cells or, or living cells, pardon me, of an animal or human, whatever. As soon as it's out, the virus is dying. It's not replicating anymore. So the amount of virus is dropping very, very fast. So within a couple of hours, uh, it, it's gone to low levels. However, and in your day-to-day life, that's not a problem. However, if you have a case living with you or a contact, those people are spewing out a lot of virus on a regular basis. So that's a different setting altogether. Those, you, you know, if, if they're infected. Um, and in that situation, you have to take extraordinary measures to make sure, you know, the living surfaces, et cetera, are all clean. Uh, that's a different matter, like in hospitals with sick, with sick patients. It can be carried in the air. Am I safe to go out, walk around on my respecting distances, go for a run or not? You're 
absolutely safe um, as long as you maintain the right distances. Because remember, this is a virus that is um, it, it is it is a respiratory pathogen or, or virus, but it moves in little droplets. And these droplets, they fall very quickly. They don't float in the air. So what happens is if I cough, if, if I had COVID, I don't. Um, if I cough, these would travel about a meter, maybe a little bit further. And for that reason, we say it should be a meter, two meters uh, between the people or for your, your, your you know, imperial audiences, three feet, six feet uh, away. The length of a llama, someone told me yesterday. So the length of a what? That, of a llama? llama, I was told yesterday. Okay. Yeah, that's how far you need to be apart from the, the other person. Um, but, uh, but the important thing is if you have that distance, you're, you're, you're safe. Um, now, there are some situations where it, it, that'll happen in hospitals where the virus can get what they call aerosolized. And that's what people worry about, where it might be in little tiny particles that hang in the air longer. But that's an extraordinary situation. It's not what you have to worry about on a day-to-day basis. The key yep. here is make it difficult for the virus to get between you and the other people. You know, that's how I explain it to people. It's just a virus. It's, it's got to get from one person to another. Make it hard for the virus. We can beat this. Brilliant. Well, many thanks, uh, Bruce Aylward, Senior Advisor to the Director General of the World Health Organization. I hope we can get you again on the podcast soon to, to bring us up to date. Absolutely. Robin, thanks for having me. Thanks very much.